everybody, and welcome to Life Before Medicine. I'm going to be your host today. My name is Heather Dipke, and I am joined by Dr. Bruce Crawford, board-certified urogynecologist, and we get to pick his brain today on all things female hormone related. So I am super excited for this topic, and welcome, Dr. Crawford. Thank you. Thank you very much. I am happy to be here and happy to talk about this important issue that seems to never be completely satisfied, right? This is one of the things that comes up reliably over and over and over again. So there just seems to be a general misunderstanding or lack of understanding that is perpetual. So let's see if we can do something about it today. Well, and I think there's a lot of confusion around this topic. Definitely. Uh, so I, we have a lot of questions from our listeners. So I'm excited for you to answer those so we can all have a better understanding. So I think we need to start with what are hormones and in particular the female sex hormones? Right. And so, so when we're, we're talking, I mean, there's lots of different kinds of hormones in the body. When we're talking about sex hormones, specifically estrogen and progesterone and testosterone, um, we're talking about sex steroid hormones. A steroid is a special kind of hormone that doesn't work by binding a receptor on the outside of a cell. It actually works by binding a receptor um, inside of the cell um, to exert its effect. And those effects are many and varied. And, um, and naturally, over the course of one's life, the levels of those hormones that circulate in the body and exert that effect change. Generally, they diminish. And, and that's really why this topic, I think, is of so much interest, because the diminishment of those hormones has a consequence that you can discern, right? It makes people uh-huh. feel different you, and not in a good way generally, right? And so it, it actually um, is something that's brought to a physician's attention readily, unlike something like hypertension, where, you, you know, it's hard to tell what your blood pressure is without seeing the doctor and having them tell you what your blood pressure is. But when you have waning levels of sex steroids in life, there are um, discernible, measurable consequences that are not generally appreciated by the patient. So you're talking about, I think, some of the common ones like night sweats, hot flashes. Is that what you're talking about by the negative effects? Yeah, so right. The hot flash is sort of the classic um, symptom of menopause, but it's only one symptom of menopause. There are many, many, many symptoms, and some of them as are, are less easily identified because they're more insidious, they're kind of slowly progressive, but ability to concentrate, um, change in uh, mood, becoming um, or feeling more easily agitated, change in sleep quality, change in sexual desire um, are also commonly associated with waning levels of sex steroid hormones, um, uh, as one approaches the menopause. And, you know, here's one of the points of confusion we can just clear up right out of the gate. Menopause is kind of an unfortunate term because it's not like you live for 51 and a half years and then you pause. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's a slow diminishment of 
um, ovarian function that occurs generally between the age of 45 and 52. And, and so it's not a, a, an event per se that happens at a certain time as it is a progression over a period of time. And then you are, one, and the strict definition of menopause is going for a year without having a period, but you know people generally know when they're in menopause. <clears throat> and then they are in menopause for the rest of their lives. And you know, Heather, it, we live so much longer than um, this body was designed for. And so you, you can really anticipate spending maybe a third of your life in menopause. And so that's a pretty significant chunk, and we should talk about what the implications are and what one can do to sustain quality of life and what are the consequences of actions one might take to sustain quality of life during that really important but hopefully is very robust one-third of your life. And so when you talk about diminishing hormone levels, that would mean the person, I mean, you don't just go like a light switch, right? There's perimenopause, and that can last for years. That's true. And so, you know, it's common for women to begin experiencing some symptoms of menopause um, in their mid to late 40s that can persist or, or get more severe over a period of time. Um, you know, there are some women that just never have a symptom, never have a hot flash, never have a night sweat. Um, Seriously. I know. And What um, percentage is that? It's less than 20%. Hey, that's because I'm not in that group. (laughs) (laughs) No one I talk to is in that group group. either, right. And and so um, for the vast majority... There, there will be an identifiable, unpleasant experience that you do have options for. Now, what does that create? That creates a market. And anytime a market is created, you are going to have lots of people vying for your business. And so there'll be all kinds of things touted as the be-all, end-all, best way, most risk-free way to manage these symptoms. And a lot of that exists within the supplement market. And, uh, you know, now with social media, you know, we're, we're constantly bombarded with information directing us to a product that is almost for sure poorly researched and not FDA approved and which is not to say the FDA just does a perfect job. They don't, mm-hmm. but but they do require high quality. Well, they require clinical research studies to have at least been attempted, you know. <laughs> and, and so it's like the cleanest shirt and the dirty hamper kind of. <laughs> but but uh, you know. Is it better than nothing? Probably. And, and so just keep that in mind that, you know, there's, there's a lot out there that um, just because it's natural, placed in quotation marks, doesn't make it f- effective or safe for that matter. Mm-hmm. There's lots and lots of natural things that are very dangerous, right? I'm sure you can think of many. Yeah, so... <laughs> If we're looking at trying to manage the symptoms, I think the thing that comes to most females' mind is hormone replacement therapy. And there seems to be a conflicting 
viewpoint yeah. on this. Yeah, that's true. Isn't that where we always start the conversation? Straight mm-hmm. to Big Pharma. Mm-hmm. You're, what, why is that? Why do we always start the conversation with that? Well, well, we if, hear a lot about it because there's a lot of marketing in regards to it. Well, that's true. And we live within a healthcare culture where if there's something wrong with you, by goodness, there's a pill for it, right? And we don't even question that anymore. If you go to your doctor with a complaint and you leave without a prescription, that's not a good doctor. He didn't even treat me because treatment has become synony- synonymous with prescription writing. Now, It is the case that Big Pharma produces a lot of effective medications, and estrogen, when you're treating symptoms of the menopause, is extremely effective. But why don't we back up a little bit before we take a dive into that and what the realities of the efficacy and safety of estrogen replacement are, and just talk about the risk factors for more severe menopausal symptoms. Are there modifiable risk factors? Are there things you can do to help avoid the need for a medical intervention? Someone should write that down. Oh, that's right. It is our mantra. That's why we do life before medicine, giving you an off-ramp. So maybe you can avoid the need for a medical intervention. So here's the thing. The two greatest influencers of the presence and severity of these menopausal symptoms we've been talking about are obesity and smoking. So smokers and people with a body mass index over 30 are more likely to have more severe symptoms. So that's something to know right off the bat is there are things that are within your reach, not necessarily easily within your reach, but there are things within your reach that one could do. Now, um, getting exercise, likewise, can be very helpful in mitigating these symptoms. But if we are going to take a more traditional approach and go to our doctor and say, fix this, what you're probably going to embark upon is a conversation about estrogen with or without progesterone. And, um, and, and so we should definitely spend some time talking about those hormones. I think it's important. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm interested. I mean, I'm obviously in that camp that is the 80% plus that's having symptoms. Right. And most, and I'm not obese. I don't smoke. I get regular exercise. I'm very consistent with my diet. So, you know, do we just like, Got it out? Well, if you do, for the substantial majority of women having menopausal symptoms, they will go away over two years. And although it seems like by the time I'm talking to women about this problem, they're in the minority of women that don't get over it, for whom those symptoms go on for longer than two years. And there are rare cases where they go on for many, many years. But you can give yourself some assurance that if you choose not to elect to take a prescription hormonal supplement, that your symptoms will eventually go away. But, you know, for many people, here's the situation. You know, you're 47, 48 years old, maybe. You're really 
at the point where you've hit your stride in your career. But this is a problem now because you may be in a meeting and you're turning bright red and dripping in sweat all of a sudden. It's embarrassing for that to happen. It draws attention and not in a good way. And so I understand that. And the most efficient, effective way to address those kinds of symptoms is by replacing estrogen. And if a woman still has a uterus, which most women do, you can't add estrogen alone safely long-term because it does increase the risk for excessive stimulation of the lining of the uterus called the endometrium and consequently over time increases your risk of endometrial cancer. So you don't want to do that. Um, so it, it would involve giving estrogen with something to antagonize the effect of that estrogen on the uterus. And that drug g is generally progesterone or a progestogen of some kind. There's many different progestogens out there, and they're not all created equally. Um, uh, more recently, some physicians have been start, starting to use the Mirena device, which is a progesterone-releasing intrauterine um, instrument um, that it's, it's just a little plastic device placed inside the uterus that slowly releases progesterone just locally um, and has a five-year um, lifespan at which time it would have to be replaced. And there are some actually newer products on the market now that may have um, different um, um, durations of utility, but that might get you around taking an oral progesterone uh, supplement um, if it is your desire to do so. And it's always better to use a drug that works locally, I think, than one that works systemically. But having a Mirena introduced into your uterus is an invasive procedure, and, and it's not a minor little nothing. It's, it's of some significance, and so you'd really have to weigh the advantages and disadvantages. But um, estrogen is sort of what we're trying to introduce to have a direct effect on your neurophysiology, specifically on the hypothalamus, to stop the events of hot flashes and night sweats. And it also can be helpful for other symptoms like quality of sleep and mood, um, to some degree vaginal dryness, although topical local estrogen for vaginal dryness is much, much more effective um, and, and not absorbed appreciably. So if you're not taking hormones but having bad vaginal dryness, that's a problem. Using topical estrogen vaginally really doesn't portend the kind of risk that we've commonly associated with taking estrogen systemically, meaning via a patch or a pill, right? Using just a little bit of um, estrogen cream locally, applying it just inside the vagina a couple times a week, um, doesn't raise your body's estrogen levels significantly. So if someone were to go on hormone replacement therapy, does that mean, Dr. Crawford, that within that maybe two plus years that they're going to have symptoms, once things resolve that they would then go off of them or would they just continue on them indefinitely? Well, it's different for different people. 
And the way I approach it when I'm talking to a patient, you know, rather than really focusing on the long game, I, I try and sort of carve out the next 12 months. Say, what are we going to do for this next year, right? Are we going to continue with this? Are we going to alter the dose, start weaning you off of it slowly and gradually? Are we going to stop it altogether? What does the next 12 months look like? Now, when you look at some of the, that kind of nicely segues into the risk discussion because <laughs> there does seem to be a cumulative risk, a, um, a dose-dependent cumul time cumulative risk in terms of breast cancer, right? That's what everybody worries about. Um, terms of estrogen replacement. And my, my feeling is that there were more women taking hormone replacement therapy before the Women's Health Initiative study got published and created a, you know, a near hysteria within at least the U.S. population. And everybody wanted off their hormones immediately, right? And, that, and it, it did show that there was increased risk of certain health problems like breast cancer and um, pulmonary embolism, certain cardiac events like myocardial infarction, heart attack, um, associated with taking Premarin and Provera. So Premarin is historic, used to be the most common hormone replacement product um, on the market and is actually extracted from the urine of pregnant horses. And it's a combination of many different horse estrogens that is effective um, at mitigating symptoms of the menopause in human beings. And PremPro, or Premarin and Provera, was a combination um, given to women that included Premarin plus a progestogen called medroxyprogesterone acetate, which is a derivative of testosterone that seemed to be the significant bad player in the women. When you really look at the data of the Women's Health Initiative study, it seemed to be the Provera, the medroxyprogesterone acetate, more than the estrogen component, contributing to adverse events. And, and, and so despite that, if we look at... Many, there's many different cohort studies that have been done looking at the risk of breast cancer um, following initiation of estrogen um, therapy, and it does seem to increase slightly over time. But the additional risk conferred by taking estrogen is nowhere near the additional risk conferred by being overweight, mm. by being a smoker, and by not exercising. It's small compared to the risk associated with those other things. And so, you know, if the baseline risk of, of getting breast cancer is 4% for a population, if you take estrogen for 10 years, your risk may be elevated as high as 7%, 7.5%. Now, there are, of course, other things that let you assess your risk of breast cancer, right? Like family history, right? Um, not having children is puts you at greater risk for uh, breast cancer. Drinking alcohol um, moderately seems to increase your risk for breast cancer. Um, but a uh, so when you look, you're going from 
4% to 7, maybe 7.5% risk. Well, that's almost doubling your risk. It's twice it, you know. But you got to look at the actual numbers out of 1,000 people, right? How many are actually getting breast cancer that might be attributed to the estrogen that's been added? And that's a small number. It's a very small number unless it's you. <laughs> if it's you, it doesn't feel like a small number anymore, right? And, and so all we can do is kind of try and get our heads around what are the actual risks of doing this. You know, we're very comfortable taking risk in life. We do it every day when we get out of bed, right? We get in the car, we get on a bus or an airplane or go to a crowded space anymore. Even people are always, you know, still wearing masks because they're very sensitive to risk, right, and risk mitigation. And so this seems to get... Um, quite a bit of attention from people for some reason. You know, I often hear people say, I will never, ever take estrogen because I don't want to get breast cancer. I say, well, nobody wants to get breast cancer. But the fact of the matter is, most human beings die of cardiovascular disease or cancer. <laughs> That's what kills people. And, and we should try and live in a way that minimizes those risks without compromising our quality of life. Undo. Right? So... So at the end of the day, all we really have is our quality of life. And many of my patients would gladly exchange a small increased risk of breast cancer for feeling good, concentrating, sleeping well, um, not having hot flashes and night sweats. And there are some people that it's very difficult to even initiate a conversation with about stopping hormone replacement. You know, there used to be this way of of providing estrogen replacement in a depot mode where they'd come in once a month and they'd get a big shot of um, slow-release estrogen intramuscularly. And they would get kind of buzzed afterwards. They really liked it. And they, they almost became like, like estrogen addicts. And if you ever tried to stop it, they were very difficult to get to try something different or to get off of it, you know. And, um, and so, we, you know, people don't really administer estrogen that way any longer. There are some pellet products that last months and months, and you have to keep going in and paying cash to have these depot estrogen um, products um, administered that probably have a, a flatter, um, you know, con circulating concentration effect than just injecting it right into the muscle. Um, but, you know, ultimately, my feeling is... The best way to take a drug is the one that most closely approximates um, what your body did or provided prior to menopause, right? So taking a pill is perfectly fine and effective, but it does require a larger amount of estrogen because it gets absorbed in the first part of your gut, goes to the liver. The liver chews up a whole bunch of it before it gets out of the liver and circulates around your brain and other parts of your body and exerts the effect you desire. But if you can take the estrogen in a different manner through a gel or a patch that avoids this thing called first-pass metabolism <coughs> or early liver, the liver seeing it first before the body, if you can avoid that first-pass metabolism, um, that's probably the best way to go, in my opinion, if, if you can deal with a patch or a gel. And some people just don't want to do it. Gels are kind of 
messy, and you know maybe they'd rather take a pill, which is also fine. So is it safer to do a gel and a patch than over a pill from the research on risk factors? Not that, not that I'm aware of. Okay. That doesn't mean it isn't safer. I think we can safely say it's not more dangerous, mm-hmm. you know, but we are saying that if you take a pill, the liver is going to be exposed to higher doses of estrogen. If there is any relationship or carcinogenic effect as a consequence of that, I don't know, and I don't know of any research that, that says so, but still, I would rather use the lowest dose of a drug possible to get the effect that I desire, right? That's just a general good principle of pharmacotherapy. Try and use the lowest dose possible. So you mentioned earlier that, you know, if you're on it for 10 years, you know, you're at a, maybe went from a four to a seven or an 8% chance of breast cancer. What about if you just wanted to use it during that couple year window? Yeah. (laughs) Is it the same risk you're taking, or is no, it the longer it, you do it, the yeah, more risk it, you sustain? It seems, it seems to be cumulative, when clear, okay. clearly cumulative over time. Okay. So for the for you do want to try to wean yourself off eventually. Maybe, but not for everyone. You know, okay. some people just are are just so much more comfortable functioning, so much better on it that they choose not to come off of it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a perfectly valid personal decision that people can make. You know. So are there, you mentioned earlier, there's a lot of herbal remedies out there. If someone didn't want to go the traditional hormone replacement route, are there safer over-the-counter things that are effective? You know, it's really discouraging that it's hard to identify something that's clearly effective. The, you know, one people hear about most is black cohosh. The, mm-hmm. the data is really discouragingly poor. I think it's, it doesn't, it's just for most women, not that effective, you know. And there's a lot of other things, you know, that, that people have tried, but there's nothing with good data showing it's really effective reliably. Every, you know, but lots of people say, no, but I found, you know, this evening primrose that works just great for me. Terrific. That's great. Uh, but, um, you know, it's just they don't seem to be in the same category of efficacy and, as would be as taking estrogen, not smoking, losing weight, exercising. Um, those things seem to, to help more. And well, meditation also, actually, there's pretty good data on um, meditation in terms of mitigating. Mm-hmm. Some data that I kind of question a little bit says it's as effective as taking estrogen, which is hard to believe. But, but we, there is we keep data. having meditation come up in multiple podcasts. I think it's a good idea. Yeah, I mean, it came up in our pelvic pain. It came up in anxiety. <laughs> right. And what have you got to, as long as you're not, doing it while driving. What have you got to lose, right? It's all upside, no downside, right? Mm -hmm. Rest your brain. It's probably a good idea. Are there benefits to the hormone replacement therapy? Because I do hear people talk about it'll help you age better physically. Yeah, I think contrary to what the WHI informed us about, um, I, I think there is 
a decrease in cardiac risk among current users of human estrogen, which is estradiol. Um, and we know that in terms of preservation of bone density, estrogen is important, especially, you know, if you're a small frame Northern European drinking, smoking woman, and, you know, you got with a family history of osteoporosis, uh, you know, you need to be doing something proactively to avoid that first fracture. You don't wait till the first fracture to say, holy crap, I got to take care of this problem that I now know I have. So you, if you're 50 years old and you haven't had a bone density scan, go get one. It doesn't hurt. It takes two minutes and, and you'll know, you know, where you are. One point really isn't that helpful because, you know, although women start losing bone after age 30, um, you, you don't know where you started. Some people say osteoporosis is a disease of adolescence because you can only lose as much bone as you lay down as an adolescent. And so you really need two points on the curve. And so getting that follow-up DEXA bone density scan, you know, two, three years after the first one tells you kind of what direction you're moving. Is it stable? Is it decreasing? But if your first bone density scan shows that you're already osteopenic and maybe, which doesn't mean you have osteoporosis, but it means, you know, you, you have less bone density than most women your age, you know, then it's time to start thinking proactively about what kinds of things can I do to limit this even before you get that second point on the curve because that may be two or three years away. And so taking enough calcium, maybe 1,200 milligrams a day of calcium citrate would be a good choice. Making sure your vitamin D is up in the 40s would be good. That's, you know, at, at one point the prevalence of vitamin D deficiency, meaning level under 30, was 80% of the United hmm. States female population. So that's, these are no-brainers. So mm -hmm. weight-bearing exercise, enough calcium, enough vitamin D, and then on top of that, making a decision about whether estrogen with or without progesterone replacement makes sense. And then beyond that, there are a whole bunch of drugs that actually... Um, um, may portend more problems, certainly more expense, that will slow down the cells that are actively involved in remodeling the bone and, and that left unchecked may be diminishing your bone density over time. But that's certainly not where you start, right, talking about drugs like Proli or Fosamax or some many others um, that have their individual um, advantages and disadvantages. But, you know, I think that is one argument for, for taking estrogen is, is preservation of bone density. And so, to some extent, skin integrity and urogenital function, although, again, topical local estrogen works much better for preservation of a uh, sexual urogenital function. Um, what else? So we talk about off-ramps all the time, right? So other than not smoking, being at a healthy weight, getting regular exercise, what are the effects of, you know, caffeine, like coffee or alcohol consumption? Or is there a certain yeah. you know, diet, like the Mediterranean diet? You know, are there yeah. things that have been shown to help? Yeah, you know, it's interesting that we know eating a lot of carbohydrates or, or just straight up eating sugar 
is likely to make hot flashes worse. There is a mix in terms of the data looking at the effects of alcohol on hot flashes and night sweats. We call those vasomotor symptoms. Um, the most recent data that I've looked at suggested that using alcohol modestly may decrease um, the effects or the discomfort associated with hot flashes and night sweats. Um, we, we know that um, drinking alcohol, though, does raise your blood sugar, much like eating carbohydrates raises your blood sugar. And so it, it seems to me it probably is more likely to contribute, but the jury's out. The data is clearly mixed on the effects of alcohol and vasomotor symptoms. Okay. I, I guess I would just say there's not enough evidence to suggest it works to give it a try if you're not already drinking, right? Okay. Because, you know, there's so many toxic effects of alcohol use that probably wouldn't be my go-to. <laughs> you know, you need to start drinking more. And so rarely the correct medical advice to give mm -hmm. people, although occasionally. Yeah. And what about caffeine? Has that had any? Yeah, not that I'm aware Okay. I'm aware that that really plays a big role that can be measured at least. There certainly may be in the idiosyncratic experiences that say, yeah. you know, I'm already more agitated because my estrogen levels are low. And now I'm drinking coffee and getting even more agitated still. Yeah, yeah that would make sense. It's okay. not, I wouldn't expect it to help. And then what about, you know, plant-based diet? keto diets, Mediterranean, has there been anything regarding that? I'm surprised that I'm una unaware of evidence suggesting that low-carb diets in general, or at least low-simple sugar diets, aren't helpful, because you don't hear about that. But we, yeah, do, but we do know that, that a high-carbohydrate high intake is associated with more symptoms. And so mm -hmm. for those people that are, are on a ketogenic diet of some kind, that might actually be helpful if, if you really have flattened out that uh, glucose curve and, and your insulin curve over time. That might be helpful. Mm -hmm. Such an interesting topic. Mm, commonly... Uh, yeah, really represents a common experience. Oh, but what's, sure. what's the bottom line? Most women have these symptoms. The symptoms will not last forever if you can get through it. If you can't get through it, there are some things you can do on your own. Quit smoking, exercise, try and get your BMI down below 30 if it's not. And then if, if having attempted those things or, or not attempted those things, you're still bothered enough to do something about it, um, talking to your doctor about estrogen replacement is a decision that, that isn't a dangerous medical intervention mm -hmm. using a conventional scale of how we measure dangerous things. Yeah, right? and especially it sounds like if you do it for a shorter period of time. Right. I think that's, I think that's true. You know, but it's quite individual. Uh, yeah. That's short for you might not be short for someone else. Well, thank you so much for talking to us. And we just want to remind everyone that Dr. Crawford is not your doctor. And it is important to talk to your doctor who can take into account your personal health history. And that this is just purely for educational purposes so we all can be more informed. Informed is good. 
informed is always good. Well, thank you so much. And I appreciate it. I know I learned a lot. Oh, you are so welcome. You know, it's always a pleasure to get to talk to you. It's such a pleasure to get to work with you. And um, I look forward to doing some more in the future. What do we have coming up? What do we have? Well, uh, we're going to continue the topic of discussing hormones, and we're going to talk to a naturopath. We're even going to get into male hormones because you guys have them too, and yours decline as you age as well. Yeah, true, true, true. We got to so talk, about, talk this. about both genders and kind of get an even-handed look at things that we can do. That's cool. I'll meet you there. Thanks so All much, right, Heather. Sounds good. Bye, you guys. Bye.